when I was sitting up here uh, looking out at you all, um, I had the kind of wish that actually we sat more in a circle. But I don't think it's so practical being so many of you. In a smaller group, sometimes I'll have people sit in a circle. But I think the reason for today is that um, I think with, when, you, when we talk, when we practice together and do the Brahmi Viharas, it's even more so that uh, we're all in the boat together of practice. There isn't, I don't think there should be too much, too strong, too much of a distinction between a teacher and the students. That, um, you know, I'm certainly not an expert on these things. Uh, I don't know if anybody can call themselves an expert. But it's something that we do together and uh, we explore together and, and develop together. And I've learned a lot about the Brahma Viharas um, from my students. Uh, so, you know, who's the student? Who's the teacher then? So, anyway, so, so I just maybe you might, might keep that in mind. Also, because the Brahma Viharas are about our, our relationship with each other. And there's a tendency, you know, mindfulness sometimes can be taught in such a way that it seems like a very personal, individualistic practice. And uh, it doesn't have to be, but sometimes that's maybe the impression people get. But I think the Brahma Viharas are very much about our relationship to our friends, our family, our society. And so sitting in a circle would have allowed us to feel that connection more. Right now you're all facing me. And that's very nice, you know, I guess, you know, for me to get your kind looks and whatever, kind regards. Uh, but really, uh, you, might, you might in your mind's eye or, your, or in, your, in your mind uh, imagine that we're all sitting here together in a circle and we're all in it together for, this, for today and for this weekend. So as we start now, since we're not going to get in a circle, I guess, uh, what you might do as a beginning is just take a, a minute or so to look around and see who you're here with. When I practiced... Um, you know, I did uh, many years of Zen practice before I was introduced to Vipassana. And when I was um, introduced to Vipassana in Southeast Asia, the way that it was primarily taught there was as an isolated practice or in just a solid, single kind of single focus practice, only on mindfulness practice. And most of my teachers in Southeast Asia didn't talk much about um, loving kindness, metta, or equanimity or sympathetic joy or compassion. We were just primarily focusing on vipassana. And I did long retreats in Asia. And um, I thought it was one of the secrets, uh, a personal secret or kind of a secret about the practice of mindfulness, that um, it elicited all this joy and all this love. And I, I didn't think I can go to my teacher and tell him that I was sitting there with all these feelings of love because, you know, it was, it was too, I don't know, it wasn't, you know, this plain, matter-of-fact kind of reporting that was expected. And I remember once um, when, uh, the sometimes when we do mindfulness practice, the experience of impermanence becomes very, very strong. Things, you see things arising and passing away. And I had the experience, you know, just I'd, I'd, I'd bring my attention, my, my awareness on a particular object. As soon as I did that, it would vanish. And at some point, I had this experience that... Um, uh, it wasn't simply I was glancing at something, but I was every time something arose, I would look at it with love, and the love would just kind of dissolve it back into love or something, and it was just really a delight to sit there with this, you know, just day after day with all this love, kind of loving everything that arose and seeing it all dissolve back into love, and it was just great. And I remember telling a friend of mine who was at the at that retreat about this experience and. 
he kind of agreed with me, oh, you shouldn't go tell your te the teacher about that. <laughs> I mean, maybe indulging too much, or I don't know what. And, uh, but I, I, didn't get the imp I, didn't, I didn't get the message from my teacher that loving kindness and joy was actually you know, an intimate part of the path. Even though I knew that he was teaching loving kindness to other people uh, in a very systematic way, he was teaching people metta meditation. But uh, he was, uh, there was no indication he was going to teach me that. And uh, so I thought it was kind of like a secret, this thing about love and loving kindness and joy. And, joy. and then I remember kind of coming back here to America and sitting long retreats here in America. I remember once, um, some, some of you might have been at Barrie, and there's a walking hall in front of the meditation hall, and walking back and forth, and feeling all this joy arise, and knowing that there are um, better places than joy in meditation. And so knowing that, kind of deeper places, knowing that, I thought the joy was a problem. <laughs> and then I would, you know, I would, I'd do a walking meditation trying to repress the joy, kind of hold it down. <laughs> I mean, can you believe it? <laughs> and, uh, and I tried, you know, trying really hard to keep the joy down, and I just ended up with a headache. And uh, then finally, I kind of, kind of gave into it. And then you know, once, it, once I kind of let myself go into it fully, actually, and it passed pretty quickly, and I was able to settle to what's considered to be a little bit deeper place. But I think that joy and experiences of love, loving kindness, friend, friendliness, very powerful states of friendliness, um, at times become an intimate part of the practice. And... Um, I say at times because uh, we can't always expect that. Uh, it, you know, things change. We have our own in unique individual personal path in the midst of the path of mindfulness and loving kindness. And, and we don't know how things are going to evolve and change and what the sequence of opening might be for us. And, um, but at some point or other, uh, I think most of us at some point will feel kind of a softening of the heart a tenderness towards ourselves and to the world around us, which translates into uh, metta, uh, uh, loving kindness, sometimes translates into joy, it's feeling joy and the joy of others. And sometimes you feel it um, in the form of compassion, feeling, uh, uh, feeling intimately the suffering around, the, around you and wanting to do something to alleviate it or feeling moved to, to alleviate it. And sometimes we feel with the open-heartedness that can happen, the tenderness, that tenderness has a quality of, equ of being equanimous, great equanimity. And um, so, also being, you know, kind of, before I did Vipassana, I kind of stumbled on Vipassana, so I was kind of this diehard Zen student. And so in Zen, they never taught me, certainly, loving-kindness practice. It was more like a samurai spirit of, you know, toughing it out. And... Um, and when I came back to practice in America after practicing in Asia, the American teachers taught a lot of loving-kindness. As many of you know, we would, we, on a regular Vipassana retreat, we often teach at least one guided loving-kindness meditation each day. And um, when they first started doing that on the retreats here in America, I said, you know, what's this? <laughs> this seems too artificial. It seems too, uh, you know, sugary. It seems too... Well, mostly artificial was a feeling. I thought that mindfulness was about just being present for what's there. You don't want to artificially create something, especially something so um, sweet and 
you know, sugary or something. It seemed to me, you know, like loving kindness. What was that? Um, even though I had a lot of experience of it in Asia, I didn't really have the words for it. I just, I just felt like a lot of love and joy. So mostly what I did was um, I tuned my teachers out when they did the loving-kindness exercises. And sometimes I, when I do this, when I now teach loving-kindness on retreats, I tell people, you're welcome to tune me out. <laughs> if, because I kind of expect at least some of you, you know, some people won't, don't want to do it, like I didn't want to do it. Um, but here, today, everybody's here, I suppose, because they're into it. <laughs> That's a different group. And so I... Um, but then what happened was that uh, at some point, uh, you know, just doing the mindfulness practice in its own course, and own time, strong states of uh, loving-kindness would naturally arise. And then when the teachers came in to do the guided loving-kindness meditation, I had a reference for it, and it was really close at hand. And so when they kind of started doing the phrases of loving-kindness, um, it was right there to be awakened or to be evoked. And it became a very wonderful practice, and it didn't feel artificial anymore. It felt like just simply awakening something which was always there and allowing it to grow or develop or become pervasive. And so since that time, I've kind of uh, been in love with loving-kindness practice. I think it's really a great practice. I love loving-kindness practice. I love mindfulness practice. Um, I don't have as much experience with the other Brahma-viharas because they're not taught so much and my own teachers didn't teach, teach them very much. Um, and um, I want to say that, uh, you know, so I'm in love with all these things, and, and I, I kind of would like to, sh one of the reasons I love teaching is I love te sharing something that I love. And, and sometimes I meet other people who love it, and then you know, it's, it's also quite wonderful. But uh, in saying that, I think we all know how difficult lovers can be. <laughs> so, you know, if it, if, I think if you're realistically engaged, in both mindfulness practice and loving-kindness practice, uh, you know, it it's, has its trials, too. So I'm happy to be here today, and, um, and I think that uh, f uh, for many people who are here, who, uh, all of you, and for the teachers who are coming, and for the staff, and for the people who uh, dreamed of this event, the whole event is an expression of um, the Brahma-viharas, an expression of loving-kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. Um, as I think most of, I think all of you know that uh, the money for this is going to um, the scholarship fund. And we have two scholarship funds. We have a scholarship fund called Mudita, uh, which is Sympathetic Joy, which is uh, to share the practice with other people who are of low income. You can't really afford some of these retreats. That, and then um, the other is the Karuna scholarship, which is for people, which is the word for compassion, and it's for those people who have um, life-threatening illnesses or have um, chronic illnesses of some sort, so that uh, they need some help to be able to come on retreat. And um, and I think it'll, the 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 this very event here is the. The I don't know how to use the word brainchild, the heart ch heart child of um, Daniel Barnes, who I suspect has never asked. For, has anybody knows he ever asked for a Karuna scholarship himself? Probably never has. But uh, he's uh, would certainly qualify. 
he has he's a quadriplegic. So anyway, there's all these people who so this I think it's a very event is an expression of loving kindness and compassion. And it's nice to be here. I believe that uh, the way that we often teach mindfulness, or maybe it's maybe inherent in mindfulness itself, is that mindfulness appears to be a, a somewhat passive practice, and that it's mostly a receptive practice of allowing things to be and recognizing what's there. However, the very act of leaving ourselves alone, just seeing and being receptive of what's there, is so counter to the way we live our no- normal life when we don't leave ourselves alone. There's a lot of judgment and criticism and planning and scheming and manipulating and all kinds of things. That Leaving ourselves alone is actually a very radical thing to do, and just seeing very clearly what we are. And if we do that, if we leave ourselves alone and recognize clearly what's happening in our life, what happens is that um, the superfluous stuff, the anxious stuff that kind of often covers our life, begins settling away because it's not being supported or fueled anymore. And it's almost as if that under all that stuff, there's a, a heart, a heartfulness, that uh, is very pure and very uh, beautiful, and that it is um, the source for wonderful emotions like loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. And there's a teaching in Buddhism, in Buddhist psychology, that mindfulness weakens the unwholesome, the unuseful states of mind that might occur to us. At the very same time, that very mindfulness, without manipulating or trying, will strengthen the wholesome aspects of our life. Um, and a lot of it, I think, just comes from the fact we're leaving ourselves alone to let our heart become tender, and a tender heart will respond beautifully to the world around us if we're willing to allow ourselves to be a little bit vulnerable. The word for mindfulness in uh, Pali is sati, and we translate it into English as mindfulness usually. And I don't know, maybe it's because of the Western... Uh, bias towards the mind, we use mindfulness as, uh, there's nothing about mind in the word sati. The Chinese, when they translated the word uh, sati into Chinese, they used these Chinese characters. And the Chinese characters are, uh, for mindfulness is made up of two characters. And the top character is um, made up of the character for the now, or the present. And the bottom half of the character is made up of the character for heart. So it's the heart of the present. So that's a different way. You know, I don't know how we want to say that in English. Uh, heartfulness. So I think that just simply the, the leaving ourselves alone that happens in mindfulness and the very clear recognition of our life elicits, evokes, develops, cultivates uh, an open heart. And, what, and I feel that one of the ways it does that is what we're cultivating in mindfulness practice is a form of awareness that doesn't exclude anything. There's nothing outside the field of awareness. If there's something outside of what, uh, what you feel is appropriate to pay attention to, then you've created a division which will cause suffering and which will limit the possibility of empathy and kindness and friendship to our whole world. And what mindfulness is doing is uh, discovering a kind of awareness with not, where, in which nothing is left outside. And that's kind of uh, maybe a little bit difficult concept to sometimes to sink in because it means we don't even leave outside 
some of the things that we consider to be negative, or you know, we don't, undesirable. We don't leave outside um, the, uh, some of the horrible suffering in the world. We don't leave outside our own suffering. We don't leave outside our anger and our depression. But we find some way to hold it all in this all-inclusive awareness. And what you can what you can do as you do mindfulness practice, if you find that you're suffering or feeling some discomfort. Ask yourself, is there something that you left outside the field of awareness? But chances are that uh, if you included everything, that uh, the dukkha, the, the kind of uh, um, suffering that Buddhism addresses, uh, will not be um, uh, really an issue. So developing an awareness that excludes nothing. So mindfulness, in a sense, is kind of maybe the passive side of practice. And the Brahma-viharas are the active side of practice. And uh, just as my teachers in Asia didn't teach them very much, there's sometimes a tendency to give uh, preferential attention to just mindfulness itself. Um, And the Brahma-viharas are about our our relationship to uh, we have with the world, with ourselves, with our friends. and while it might arise naturally in the context of mindfulness practice, it's also we also have the option of not leaving it to chance, which means that we can actually cultivate it and practice it. Um, and one of the things, one of the values of doing a weekend like this and practicing these uh, is so that we become more familiar with them. And if we're more familiar with them, we can recognize them when they arise in us, because sometimes these things can arise very subtly. And if there's a recognition there, the, the, the function of recognition and mindfulness is to strengthen the wholesome qualities. So if you can recognize your compassion when it's there, your sympathetic joy when it's there, it tends to strengthen those things and they become a bigger part of our life. Also, the Brahma-viharas provide the foundation for a crea- creative, emotional, and also practical response to life. Um, Many, many people in our society don't, have, don't see a very wide range of ways to respond to the world around them. Some people, some men, you know, seem to get, the, seem like the main, respo- main kind of message they've gotten growing up is it's best to be aggressive in almost any situation. Some men fear not being aggressive, not being assertive or being angry. And, and there's a whole other range of ways to be. A lot of people defend the value of anger in our culture. And... Uh, I don't want to get into that question now, but um, whether it's useful or not, there's often better responses than anger. And becoming familiar with the four Brahma-viharas is becoming familiar with other possible responses to the world around us. The word vihara means uh, abode, and it's a place where we can dwell. The Brahma-vihara is a place where we can rest our life, rest our heart. And the Brahma is uh, refers to the supreme deity of the Indian uh, Buddhist Indian pantheon of deities. Some people are surprised to learn that Buddhism has deities, gods, because some people think it's kind of an atheistic religion. The Buddhism has lots of gods, uh, just that uh, Buddhism tends not to think very highly of them. They, you, you know, they, you, you kind of feel a little bit sorry for them. <laughs> they have it pretty good, but... 
but uh, I think by calling it Brahma, it also means kind of supreme or ultimate. Or sometimes Brahma, the word Brahma, is just uh, can almost be translated into English as spiritual, perhaps. You think? Maybe. Um, and these Brahma Viharas sometimes are translated. There's another Pali word for them. It translates in, into English as the boundless abodes. Uh, the unlimited bones, but the boundless abodes because uh, they help cut through all the divisions, all the, ba- the barriers or boundaries between us and the rest of the world. Um, all the bound divisions we make in the universe. And remember that mindfulness is awakening to a po- possible awareness which is, doesn't exclude anything, and in that sense is kind of a boundless awareness. In the same way, we can develop boundless loving kindness that also doesn't exclude anything, that includes everything boundless compassion and sympathetic joy. These Brahma-viharas, I think it's interesting the way that they're practiced. They are practiced uh, usually by starting with oneself and uh, directing loving-kindness, joy, compassion, equanimity about or towards oneself. Because it's not so much, we're we're not denying ourselves or our qualities in doing this practice, but rather we often start with ourselves, appreciating ourselves, and then from that we universalize, we expand out and universalize that experience. And we don't often, and it's done sequentially, and you first do it to yourself, and then you do it to people who you feel close to, like to benefactors, and to friends, maybe families, people who are kind of, it's kind of maybe easy to do it, you want to do it for. And then you try to develop these things for neutral people, people who kind of don't have any feelings one way or the other for. And then you do it, uh, then you kind of let it, and then you kind of keep universalizing it and you go move it into people who are difficult. And then you even go further into people who are your enemies. And then and once you've kind of done that really well, uh, then you begin doing it kind of blanketly to all, kind of in all kinds of people, all men, all women, all, you know, people in Woodacre, all people in California, all difficult, all kinds of categories, difficult people, good people, all paramedics. We can send it to them. It's very nice. They probably could use it. All politicians. Um, And one of the paradoxes of Buddhism, I don't think it's a paradox from a Buddhist point of view, but maybe from a Western point of view, is that um, Buddhism talks a lot about no-self. And that teaching of no-self tends to maybe resonate with the kind of Western f- teachings of uh, self-effacement. And so we get kind of confused about what this teaching of no-self is about. But the paradox is that at the same time that Buddhism teaches about no-self, it also teaches that one of, the, one of the very virtuous things you can do, one of the very useful things you can do, is to rejoice in your own good qualities. And I think for some people in the West, rejoicing your own good qualities seems like an odd thing to do. It maybe even seems kind of egotistical. You're supposed to kind of be humble and not really, you know, rejoice in your own qualities. But rejoicing your own good qualities is considered to be a very useful thing to do in Buddhist practice. So we start with ourselves. And a distinction can be made between... and, and, And the Buddhist path, I think, is a very emotional path. Many Westerners, when they first had contact with Buddhism, thought that it was a very dry, unemotional, austere, ascetic, 
world-renouncing path. And if you read some of the books about Buddhism from a hundred years ago, that's kind of the impression you got. And who wants to be part of that? But if you do Buddhist practice, you see it's actually a practice which is, um, I think, qu- involves a lot of emotion. And I would say even passion at times. Um, there's words that can be translated as some of our definitions of passion. The word like samvega could be a passion or zeal for practice. Um, and, and as we practice, I think it becomes, it becomes emotional. The emotions become very, very strong. Um, loving kindness becomes strong, joy becomes strong, and equanimity, which is a, a very powerful emotion, I would say, um, also becomes very powerful the more we do this practice. And a distinction maybe can be made between self-centered emotions and connecting emotions. And the emotions we tend to cause problems are those which um, are self-centered. We have, really have to do with us being self-centered. And we're self-centered the way I'm using the word now, it tends to um, uh, lessen the, our intimate connection with others around us. And then there are emotions which are connecting emotions, which allow us to develop more intimacy and, and, uh, and uh, wholesome connection with the world around us. And so loving kindness, sympathetic joy, compassion, and equanimity are such emotions. So there's four of us who are going to teach these four foundations of mindfulness. And uh, this afternoon, Sylvia is going to come and to do compassion. No, she's going to do equanimity. And then tomorrow uh, morning, Joanna Macy is going to do sympathetic joy. And then the afternoon, Jack's going to come and do compassion. And uh, there was someone who was concerned about the order being messed up. <laughs> and, um, and maybe it was, you know, maybe it's messed up, but who's to say what the order is? Um, I mentioned this to Jack yesterday, and he said, oh, but you know, the Buddha, he almost never taught all four of these together. He just taught them each of them separately. So who knows what order it's supposed to be in? Um, there is a kind of logic that starts with loving-kindness and develops and goes, ends in equanimity. But, uh, you know, we're, human minds are so wonderful, we can always find logic for almost anything we do. <laughs> so I'm sure, you know, if I thought for a moment I could create the right logic for why we're doing the sequence we are today. But the real logic is that uh, Sylvia couldn't agree to do <laughs> this afternoon and couldn't, and so there was a switch. Uh, in order so she could still make it. Um, and um, also, I should point out, since you know, so, so we don't want to take this thing about the, the order too dogmatically, be kind of religious, religious fundamentalists about, fundamentalist about the order. It's, uh, it's, uh, most uh, scholars who study this kind of stuff and uh, feel or think or conclude that these Brahma-viharas um, uh, were originally not Buddhist. They're pre-Buddhist. And they're just part of the Indian religious environment. And so the Buddha just, you know, he, Buddha didn't invent a religion out of nothing. Uh, he just incorporated many, many elements from the religion of his time. And the religion of his times have all, you know, most of them kind of, kind of more or less kind of faded away, maybe, or something had changed enough. So, but, so a lot of things survived mostly in Buddhism. 
And so we think, oh, it's Buddhism. It's just good sense. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, so, so it's not a particularly Buddhist thing, the Brahma-viharas, so. In, uh, many of you know that in Theravadan Buddhism, the, uh, the, the preeminent emotion that's cultivated in practice is loving-kindness. And you can go to, to, to Thailand and Southeast Asia, and there are um, monks and nuns there who specialize in practicing loving-kindness. And they're known for the field of loving-kindness that's around them. And people will go and pilgrimage to them just because of their loving-kindness. Isn't that great? You have cultural heroes who, because they're, they have so much loving-kindness. Maybe a little bit different than the cultural heroes that we have. Um, and in Mahayana Buddhism, the preeminent, preeminent emotion or attitude is that of compassion. And, um, and so I don't want to compare, you know, what's, you know, which one's better. I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me to talk about that. They're just two different ways, em- emphasis is where people begin. Um, but part of the reason in Theravadan Buddhism, I believe, that loving-kindness is preeminent, is taught first and taught so much, is that um, loving-kindness is the foundation for the other three Brahma-viharas. That what loving-kindness is, is a open-hearted, um, uh, an open-heartedness to the world around us. It's an open-hearted a uh, wish of uh, well-wishing, wishing others to be well and to be happy, wishing ourselves to be happy and wishing others to be happy. That arises out of kind of an open-heartedness. The other three are the, re- are the responses of this open-hearted loving-kindness to different conditions in the world. So we cultivate loving-kindness as a foundation and then when loving-kindness, this open-heartedness, meets different inv- situations, it takes the form of sympathetic joy, compassion, and equanimity. So when, when, we, when, when we're in the presence of someone who has a lot of joy and happiness, has succeeded in something, then uh, the open-hearted and loving-kind kind of response is to share in their joy. If we feel envious in their joy and their success, then the heart is kind of closed. But if we're unenvious, then an open-hearted will share in that joy and the, the, that delight. Uh, if we meet the suffering of someone else, then um, I think an open-hearted response is to feel somehow empathetically that suffering and then to naturally want to um, wish that person uh, to be alleviated from their suffering or wish to do something about it. So loving-kindness is kind of often considered a foundation um, in Mahayana, the compassion is often cons- is a preeminent emotion because um, compassion is, the, is a very strong motivating factor in our practice. That it's a lot... If you really feel compassion for the world and for suffering in the world, um, it's a lot easier to sustain a spiritual practice, a Buddhist practice, for a whole lifetime or for lifetimes. That if you're not doing it for others... If, not, if your practice isn't for others, which it often isn't is for the first... It, it, often when people first start practicing, we just do it for ourselves. We're kind of having a hard time, you want some help, or... It's kind of something we do it for more personal reasons, and that's, I think, quite appropriate. But at some point, if you're doing it only for yourself, 
I think it's very hard to sustain a religious practice. And the only thing that will sustain it over a whole lifetime is at some point you feel that this practice also has, is you doing it for other people. So because of that, and because the Mahayana are in it for long haul, they, cult, they, they put a lot of focus on compassion, developing compassion, to keep the motivation going for lifetime after lifetime. However, Sylvia has lately has been saying that equanimity is the foundation for all the others. And, uh, and, uh, and she's all kind of, you know, you know Sylvia, she gets all enthusiastic. And so she's all enthusiastic about equanimity being the, the source of them all. And she called me first and said, well, I switch with her because, and then she said, well, yeah, equanimity should be first after all. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I couldn't switch. But uh, I think she has, there's some truth to, what, to her, what she's saying. And in, the fact, in, the, in that equanimity is what arises very much out of mindfulness practice. And equanimity is this kind of uh, willingness to keep the heart open um, without letting the heart kind of uh, hook on to different things that go through it or get attached to different things that go through it or close off to different things that go through it. Equanimity is that smooth evenness that, al- that receives everything without... Uh, maybe if I... This is tried to say it this way, but maybe it gives the idea. It's kind of like equanimity is like having a Teflon heart. <laughs> not that you know things slide off exactly but uh, but um, you can receive everything fully completely and intimately but there's no uh, fear or aversion or attachment where any of that stuff hold you know becomes a problem so equanimity is very important the more equanimity you have the more open open-mindedness we have I think that naturally the other emotions will arise but you have to hear what Sylvia has to say this afternoon Someone who is unknown wrote, We live in a world torn between wanting to listen to the sound of a flower growing and wanting to ignore the sound of the sky falling. By sometimes being sensitive to the first process, we acquire the energy necessary to prevent the second. So we cultivate loving kindness, mindfulness, and as we do that, uh, we also cultivate the capacity to feel compassion and be present to be witnesses for the sky falling in the world. Maybe that's, I feel like I'm talking too much. So let's, maybe we, st- uh, we should soon start with some uh, practice. So take... Um, a few deep breaths, closing your eyes. And it's nice at the beginning of a sitting to take these deep breaths and use the exhalation to settle into your body. body, the way your body presents itself to you right now. 
feeling your body arise out of your seat, out of your cushion, upright in the air. And then also you can scan through your body. And if there are any muscles, kind of larger muscles, which are easy to relax, you can soften them. Sometimes you can start with your forehead, softening and relaxing. The eyes. And if it's easy, you can soften the jaw. And if it's simple to do so, you can soften and relax the shoulders, allowing them to be. And sometimes it's possible to relax the stomach and the abdomen. And then sit here feeling the stillness of the body and within the body as part of the body, become aware of your breathing. And for the next little while, maintain a connection between your awareness and your breath, allowing your breath to move across move into your awareness. Letting go of your thoughts and concerns. Maintaining the connection between awareness and the breath. The connection of the breath with the body.
allowing the breath to be just the way it is. And as you sense and feel the breath in your body, do you feel the breath, the breathing, more deep inside your body or more in the surface? you feel more connected with either the in-breath or the out-breath, or you're evenly connected with both? Now let go of your connection with your breath. See if you can bring to mind some time in your life when you felt particularly happy, particularly happy and content. See if you can remember a particular event, a place, a time. mind's eye. Remember what the situation, the 
place looked like. Kind of roam around the landscape or the room. Recalling the people who might have been there, if they were there. Perhaps you can remember the smells. Remember how you felt. Perhaps you can remember how your body felt. The feeling of energy, the feeling in your face, in your heart. And if it's at all possible, see if you can allow some of those feelings of the memory to abide within your body now. within your heart. And then gently let go of the memory and simply feel your body. Feel how your body and your heart is right now. And then bring your attention to rest in the area around your heart. Feeling yourself as someone who's capable of feeling happiness. So for someone who has a right to feel happiness. Extend feelings of loving kindness. Extend whatever feelings of well-wishing or friendliness as you can to yourself. Perhaps allowing the breath to move in and out through the heart. And then you can repeat silently to yourself the following phrases of loving kindness. And what's important in loving kindness practice is not so much the evoking of loving kindness, but connecting to the intention of wishing yourself well. May I be happy.
May I be free from physical harm. May I dwell at ease in this body. (coughs) May I be free from mental harm. May I dwell at ease in this mind. May I be free of worry and anxiety. I think in part loving kindness, the possibility of feeling loving kindness or the intention of it is something which is very close at hand. And sometimes it only takes not changing the situation, but just simply changing our perspective we have on the situation. Um, uh, Seeing ourselves in a different light, seeing other people in a different light, seeing ourselves as maybe one human among, how many are we now? Five billion or two billion or many billion? One among many sometimes. So some people it can be overwhelming to have that image, feel like ants. But for some people uh, it can be really inspiring because you don't take yourself quite as serious, but you're part of this wonderful phenomena of uh, human beings which exist on this earth. And uh, as one of many, it's easy often to have kindness or feel compassion towards the other, all the others, but not in this direction. But if you feel like you're one of those many others, just one, one of the many kinds of others, then um, it'll make sometimes a little bit easier to have it for oneself. So let's do another sitting. So the basic idea and posture for sitting is to take a posture where you can be alert, but also somewhat at ease. So it usually means sitting up straight. And then take again some deep breaths, settling in into your body. And you can use sometimes that the first few deeper breaths as a way of arriving here, connecting to your body, allowing your energies or the impulses within you to settle and be here rather than in lots of different thoughts and concerns. And then breathing normally. Once again, simply feel how you are right now. Your body, your mood, your feelings. Sense them from the inside. Without any idea that there's right or wrong ways of feeling. Just feel how you are. Allowing it to be okay to be as you are right now.
and as a way of being kind to yourself, if it's easy and simple, you can relax your body. Relax your shoulders and your stomach. Relax the chest. Relax the neck, the face, the eyes. bring to mind some aspect of yourself, some quality or aspect or some difficulty or anything at all that you feel might benefit from some loving kindness or deserve some loving kindness from yourself. Some wonderful quality perhaps that you have or some difficult situation And if you can think of such a situation, such quality, and if this instruction makes sense, is there some place generally in the body where that quality is located? And if you can feel a location for it, or whether you can't, Direct some loving-kindness to that part of yourself, some appreciation. May this quality be happy, May it be peaceful. May it be at ease. And then sitting here quietly, feel your breathing coming in and out, feeling your breath perhaps in your chest, or imagining the breath comes in and out through the chest center. And as you breathe in, you breathe in feelings of intentions of loving-kindness, of warmth, of fullness. And then as you breathe out, you breathe out peacefulness, calmness, a letting be-ness. And if you want, you can say you can say simple words, labels, as you breathe in. You can say metta or love. And as you breathe out, you can say peacefulness or calmness.
letting yourself be just the way you are, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in loving kindness, breathing out calmness. This talk was given by Gil Franz Dillett Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 7, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.